I've had dreams that weren't just dreams. We accept the reality of the world with which we're presented. It's as simple as that. Billions of people just living out their lives. Oblivious. They taught you good. Made you believe their world. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Paradigm. I'm your host, Paul Brackell. Welcome back to all my regular listeners. And if you're a new listener and this is the first time you've listened to this show, what you can expect from this show is, is to definitely have your worldview challenged because it's called Beyond the Paradigm. And the reason for that is, is that I believe that there's been a paradigm or a framework that has been pushed upon us in which we're told that this is how the world is. We must observe the world through this particular paradigm. And it's been set up by the globalist elite. But this podcast challenges that. And we look into all kinds of topics, including things like artificial intelligence, ancient mysteries. We've talked about UFOs. We've talked about the COVID pandemic, 15-minute cities, a variety of topics. And I've had a number of guests on over the weeks, and I've got a number of guests already booked. And if you're a regular listener of the show and you haven't already done this for me, please, could you leave me a review? If you're following the show... You can leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcast as it makes the show more visible and it makes the show just easier to find for people when they're looking for something to listen to. Secondly, could I ask, would you consider maybe supporting the show financially? You could do this by signing up at patreon.com slash beyondtheparadigm and for £3 a month, You'll become a member of the show. You'll acquire voting rights to vote on what topics you want on the show. And you'll also just be helping the show out to stay on air. As I've mentioned before, there are costs incurred to running the show. But if you can't do a regular monthly donation, you could do a one-off donation at buymeacoffee.com slash beyondthep5. And there you can just leave a one-off donation if you feel so inclined to help out the show. And as usual, I'll leave all the links in the show description. So today I've got with me another guest. Today I have with me a lady by the name of Shannon Rowan. Shannon is an author, a geopolitical researcher and an artist. And she's wrote a number of books, including a joint book which she wrote with one of my previous guests, John Hamer, called Welcome to the Masquerade, Prelude to the Coming Reset. She's also wrote a book on her own called Wi-Fi Refugee, The Plight of the Modern Canary. But today we're going to be talking about her book, Shots Fired, Vaccine Weapons and Medical Tyranny and the War Against Humanity. And what I would say is this is definitely going to challenge what you believe regarding um, the medical industry, your doctors, how they're trained and also why we get sick. So sit back and enjoy the show and I'm going to go and get Shannon and bring her onto the show. Welcome to the show, Shannon. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be on. Really excited about it. 
Yeah, so you're so you're the author of uh, a number of books, including the one that I want to talk to you about today, which is Shots Fired, Vaccine Weapons, Medical Tyranny and the War Against Humanity. And like I was saying to you just before off air, I've been reading your book and I can tell you've done a mountain of research. And I always get guests on who've done research because I want my audience to understand that there's a, a whole separate alternative worldview than the one that's been pushed on us. And there's people out there that have done massive amounts of research. But just before we sort of start talking about your book, just so people know who you are, who possibly haven't heard of you before, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, like your background and how you got into writing and in particular this book? Yeah, um, I'll try to make it brief. It's a little bit of a long story, but I mean, I do have a background in journalism, um, mostly photojournalism, but I was an editorial writer as well for magazines, um, mostly not not news newspapers or anything so much but um i then and i was in advertising as well for a while so i really got to see the manipulation that went on both in advertising and in news and it, i was really like disenchanted with that and um so i got out of that i was just like i couldn't do it anymore it was soul crushing <laughs> and then i um and then i just had other work um you know i had a dog walking business just kind of random thing well i was i'm a creative person so i'm an artist as well and i actually have illustrated and written two children's books that i've published as well so um but i got into sort of like oh that questioning you know like i said after seeing things the manipulation um i started questioning the news and what was fed to us and then i kind of like stumbled on like david Icke's work at one point and things like that and I, so i was somebody who was like open-minded for sure you know and questioning the narratives and then i became electrosensitive they call it um it's actually really microwave injury it used to be called microwave injury or microwave syndrome um, just when 4G rolled out and smart meters came on our home and I got a smartphone and kind of within that period, that first year of all that, I got really sick and I became actually like allergic to it in a sense of these frequencies and immediate responses biologically like headaches, migraines, chest pain, heart arrhythmias, insomnia, you know, a weird electrical kind of feelings in my body that's like electrocution. And so I have had to like get away from this. And I was living in a big city at the time and I've lived in a lot of big cities all over the world. And I finally was like, I have to get out of this. And at first I thought I'd just move a little bit outside of town, but then it was like cell towers everywhere. Hadn't really realized what had happened. Like most people, how quickly it all went up, you know, it had just exploded everywhere. And I just hadn't even noticed them. I don't think I was even noticing what a cell tower looked like really. And I think most people, when I start showing them the cell towers actually didn't, had never noticed them or the antenna and they're everywhere. You know, it's like, we just kind of tuned it out. Um, so I had to move and several times and luckily with my partner who supported me through this, which is unusual to say the least. Um, I've met several others like me who just have not had that support at all. People think they're crazy. Um, so I moved out to Arizona, rural Arizona, and then we had to move from there because the smart grid came there. And so we moved out to an off-grid property in very northern California near Oregon. And um, we love it here, actually, but it was a lot of work to get here. And, um, you know, just supporting that financially, not having like a secure income source. We had to keep changing jobs and that. So um 
anyway, I met John Hamer uh, when I was like just kind of re- doing a lot of random research and um, ended up reading his falsification of history and I got in touch with him. I had some questions and then we kind of just struck a fr- up a friendship and he recognized that I was a good writer just from my email correspondence. And he had never heard of like the EMF issues I was telling him about. And so he thought he wanted to write about it, but he didn't really have that knowledge and understanding that we could like co-author something. So we'd actually started co-authoring a slightly different book um, about transhumanism before and just the EMF topic before um, the COVID thing started. And then when that hit, we were both like, whoa, this is crazy. This is big. This is a big deal. You know, this is obviously like huge upheaval socially and huge control, you know, agenda. And we need to focus more on that. So that's why we kind of, you know, rerouted everything into um, Welcome to the Masquerade which took us a couple of years um, because we were both moving around at the time and a lot going on personally in our lives. So it took longer than we had planned. Um, And in that time though, I did a lot of research about things I hadn't researched before, viruses, vaccines. You know, I had been skeptical about the medical industry because I had reacted badly to pharmaceuticals in the past. And, And I started increasingly questioning like, what are doctors doing? Like, they don't seem to know anything. And they seem like to do the more harm than good and, you know, a lot of unnecessary surgeries and things. So I just kind of had, I saw the experiences of my friends and family going through this too, and actually losing a close friend to um, surgeries and, you know, who died because of the treatments for his cancer killed him within a year, young person, you know? So it was like, those kind of things started to really open my eyes. And I'd already like just cut out doctors and pharmaceuticals from my life completely for several years before this happened. And I, I haven't had one pharmaceutical over the counter or whatever for like 15 years, at least, um, you know, not at all. And people, cause people get afraid and they're like, but what about this and this and this? And I've found the problem is we've lost that knowledge and I've found regained a lot of it. I've done a lot of study into natural medicines for, you know, again, like for decades now. So, so I have a lot of this knowledge now, but it took a lot of digging it took a lot to do this because it's not readily available it's not like you know it's just so difficult to um it is difficult for us to find the so-called alternatives what used to be like just known you know real medicine um and so i don't rely on any of that anymore so but i didn't hadn't really looked into vaccines or looked into this viral paradigm at all until um until the pandemic. So that's how I'm here. And I also wrote a book about my electrosensitivity journey and EMF issues um, and Wi-Fi refugee play to the modern day canary. But I do bring in that EMF issue into these other issues because they are interrelated as I see it in terms of control agendas, in terms of weakening us and dumbing us down as well and making us addicted to the technology that is basically like taking over our lives. So all connected. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's something I've thought about for years. Like you think about radio waves and then obviously you've got the, the 3G, the 4G towers going up. And I've said to people in the past, like surely this stuff must affect people. And obviously, like you said, it affected you considerably and you've met other people. And I just find it, you know, it, it, it it's fascinating to hear that there's actual people who've got really sick from it. But like you said, you know, Possibly it has a part to play in dumbing us down or whatever. I mean, we most of us probably don't even realise how it is affecting us. But the the addiction, like, that's the big thing. One of the things I've been thinking of recently is about, you know, how if 
if the grid was to go down and we lost power, um, what would people do? I mean, I, I'm 44 years old. I grew up without mobile phones. I could quite easily survive. I hardly ever watch television. I do a lot of reading. Um, so, you know, I do use technology because I do this podcast and I have to post things, you know, to do with that. So I do use it, but it wouldn't be the end of my life. But some people, it's like, it definitely would be. I mean, and you like the the Wi-Fi refugee thing, and obviously we've all got Wi-Fi in our houses, and and I, I just think to myself, it cannot be doing us any good. And like you said, you even had to move away. I mean, in in the course of your studies, how how common is it that people have reported sort of illnesses that are related to this? How, like, do you know a lot of people, or is it just a few, or are people not certain why they feel this way? Well, I do know a lot of people, but then again, and interestingly, some of it was just because I was going to places to get away from it. And I found the same people in my neighborhoods going for the same reason. So we found, we met each other. Um, there's forums online. So you obviously can meet people there. Um, but also since I published my book, people contact me, you know, they hear the podcast or they email me. So I can't really count how many people I've met or talked to who have this. Um, but at the same time, I also have noticed that like, the decline in health overall that I think is related because um, there are thousands actually of studies proving that these um, frequencies do harm us and the radiation harms us and that in, in sp specific ways that are documented that have been documented well before the rollout of any of these wireless grids um, and it matches you know so you know, the military, U.S. military documented this extensively, not because they're trying to help humanity, but because they use, they want to find EMF weapons. I mean, there are actually like electromagnetic pr um, weapon proving grounds. You know, I've seen them, I've seen the signs. So like it is, can be, and is used as a weapon. Um, there's no documented benefits. So even if you want to say, well, we don't, you know, what the industry has done is deflect this for years and years and years and like, and put off studies. They've never done long-term safety studies ever. Whatever studies have been done are extremely inadequate and outdated. And they rather like just keep experimenting on us and going with it instead of like taking a precautionary principle approach to like, well, let's find out first. And we already know, I mean, the research is already there, but it's always like, they're just kind of like, getting our attention away from it because it's a huge industry. It's really powerful and profitable. It didn't have to be wireless. Our communications could have stayed, you know, wired and cable um, DSL. And the fact is that you will never have as fast of, and good of a connection with wireless as you can with wired. And so there's nothing about speed. It's nothing about reliability or good connection. What it is about is the fact that with wired connections, it's very difficult to wiretap and listen in on conversations and track people's movements. But with wireless, this enables all governments or agencies, whoever, to monitor us to sur for surveillance. And so to me, like if governments decided to invest in this instead of wired, that's because they want to use it for surveillance purposes. Um, and so, and the fact that in the forties, as early as that, maybe a little earlier, definitely after that forties to sixties ish, um, there was a lot of research into how these frequencies affected our mental state, our emotional state. 
Um, and definitely with like electrodes in the brain. So these definitely don't get an implant that, you know, Elon Musk is pushing <laughs> the neural link and the other companies do not do that. That is a really bad move because it's already been proven how much it's basically like you'll get a microwave lobotomy. I mean, that's what the end result has been with these experiments already is like, that's what it does. You know, it'll just turn people crazy, aggressive, and then into a zombie. It cannot cure any of these diseases it says that they can cure with. I mean, it's already like, again, decades and decades of research already showing harm, proving harm, proving that people's emotional states can be controlled to a point, but also ultimately it's destructive to them. Like you can maybe control people for a while, but they rebel and it sort of just ends up with the person just going crazy, you know? So, um, but I'm seeing that people are affected because there's chronic insomnia, there's chronic brain fog, so-called there's chronic headaches, there's, you know, chronic malaise, chronic fatigue, um, an epidemic of this all over, just across the board, all over the world. And the common denominator that we all share now, like you said, is like Wi-Fi in the homes, cell towers on the streets, you know, the phones in people's pockets, um, decline in fertility rates, you know, it, it directly affects sperm mobility and um, every ovaries and everything with, to do with fertility is hormones. Um, even just from the perspective of blue light exposures, you affect your thyroid gland, which is on the surface of the skin. And that's affecting all the other glands and hormones. And we're getting like weird light signaling. So everybody should know about circadian rhythms and like that we are basically designed to you know, with our energy levels and our, and it's again, affecting hormones, it affects sleep to have certain kind of light quality of light in the morning and the, the midday and then the evening and then at night. Right. So the blue light is basically similar to noonday light. And you're getting this noonday light kind of signaling all day. You know, obviously that's not good for you. It stimulates overstimulating people and that the stimulation itself is an addiction has addictive qualities. So like you're just like craving coffee or sugar, you know, caffeine or sugar, you're create, you crave being in these fields because where everybody's so tired. And at the same time, it's this vicious cycle of like burning out your adrenals and then, you know, needing it again, because you don't have your own energy source anymore. Like you feel like you need to be around these sources of energy, which are depleting your own and then wearing you out. And, you know, so, but yes, if that, I'm sorry, I went on a bit there, but, um, but that's like, I see it affecting everybody. People would notice if they actually had knew that if they I even just thought at all that this could harm them, they might start noticing, you know, you might start seeing a relationship between how much you're on the computer and the Wi-Fi is on or not. And if you have your cell phone and it's close to your head or not, if it's in your pocket, if you get away from it. If you don't turn it off at night, if you turn your Wi-Fi off at night and the phone off at night, will you sleep better? Um, I wrote in Wi-Fi Refugee of an experience when we were having to move from the East Coast and we moved out West of staying at an Airbnb. And I only could stay at Airbnbs along the way where I could request things like turning the Wi-Fi off at night, right? So I requested this and she said, sure. But then I forgot to say, oh, also like cell phones, because it turned out we were sharing a room next to this woman's daughter's room who I could tell her cell phone was on because I was so, and I'm like less sensitive than that now because I've detox a lot, heavy metals. And I, that's something you know, we can get into or not, but, um, I've gotten away from it enough and recovered enough that I'm not as hypersensitive to it. I definitely notice it doesn't feel good and I can get worn out after a while with it, but I won't notice it the way I did before where it's like, I know your phone's on, you know, unless you get really close to me. I mean, at that point I could tell it was her phone was on in her room. Something was on because I could feel it. And then I got the meter out to confirm it because you can get the meters and then you can see what's happening around you. You know, it can really be like opening your eyes to this when you get a meter. 
Um, and so I just asked uh, the host, like, could you have her daughter, please? Uh, I think she has something on in her room, like her cell phone, because she also turned that off. And she's like, okay. So the next morning she ran to me, like this woman was like, I never, I slept so well last night. I've never, two years, I haven't slept like hardly at all. And I slept and I'm sure it's because we turned this stuff off. Thank you. She hugged me. She was like in her bathrobe and she was just like hugging me and crying because she had had a good sleep. Finally, she said, I can admit, I thought you were a little crazy. My daughter thought you were a little crazy and she didn't want to have to turn off her phone, but she, um, she you know, agreed because like <laughs> I was the guest and everything, but yeah, that's a good example right there. And I have other examples like that. People don't know to think of that as a connection. And then, so they don't try to get away from it and they don't experiment with that. I've definitely noticed over the last few years that I'm way tireder. Like my wife's the same. And it's like, is this the reason why? Like all the time I'm lethargic and tired. I mean, I, I was always very, very active. I've, I've spent a lot of time outdoors. I served eight years in the army. I was in the Cubs and Scouts and things like that when I was a young, young, younger boy. Um, and, and just... You know, I often think, you know, having my phone in my room and then you've got the Wi-Fi turned on, is is that it? Is that why I'm... Because it, it doesn't seem to matter what I do. I just feel tired all the time. And like you said, th there's no actual real positive effects from it. There's no, like, you know, studies that can prove, well, yeah, it, it makes you feel great because it definitely... It's definitely only negative in, in terms of how it affects the human body. That That's... I mean, to me, that seems obvious. Um, but obviously, you've wrote the book, Shots Fired, va the Vaccine Weapons Medical Tyranny. And one of the interesting things uh, as, that stood out straight away was talking about Edward Jenner, because obviously, Edward Jenner is celebrated as basically like the father of vaccines. Um, but his story is actually very different from the mainstream. I mean, you've obviously studied him. What's the reality about Edward Jenner and his, um, you know, his smallpox vaccine? Yeah, that's a good story. And I really got interested in that. So I actually read um, one volume of his biography <laughs> written by like a close friend of his at the time, like right after his death. Right. So um, and what was so interesting about that was all of his personal letters were in there. Like, you know, I mean, because this person who did the, the biography, John Barron, again, like a close friend of his and colleague of some kind, he was like a worshiper of Jenner or he was just the propaganda mouthpiece or something, but he definitely like didn't even seem to realize that when he was exposing his friend by showing these letters, like for who he was really, because he was so blinded to him, like just like anybody following a cult leader and they're like, and they'll, you know, there's something obvious about the cult leader's behavior and they just don't see that and they can't understand it for what it is. So anyway, um, really interesting read, really interesting letters, but basically he was not some humble country doctor. That's sort of the, like the propaganda, like kind of fairy tale we get is that he was just like a humble origin. He's a country doctor. He was just a, an admirer of nature. And, you know, and he was like, he was observant of nature and whatnot. And he heard about the milkmaids, um, you know, not getting smallpox because of exposure to cowpox, which is just really means that cows getting pustules for being unhealthy and over milked with their teats can get pustules on them. And um, depends on how you milk, how much you milk, you know, and how they're treated. And um, so, you know, the, so he wanted to investigate this allegedly. And the other thing about him is that he's a, 
a Royal Society member and, and a Royal Society member, if you, it's amazing. Like when you look at all these fathers of different things, father of modern surgery, father of, you know, this and that is like, they're all Royal Society members, um, which is really an elite exclusive club. And uh, he was also a Freemason and not just a ordinary Freemason, but a master Freemason, you know, highest level, actually a master of a lodge where um, the likes of uh, Prince of Wales at the time, you know, frequented um, the Darwin family, you know, they were buddy buddies. So like all these people, like, and it, it's like, what a coincidence. Oh, Darwin and all these like, you know, great heroes of society that were, I mean, were pushed forward that way. And were, to me, it's like almost either they were given a script or something where it was like, this is what we need to happen next, you know, um, and, and with our long-term plans, right? I mean, it's what it feels like. So um, allegedly he got into the Royal Society for having written a, a paper about the cuckoo bird <laughs> or something. And, and But really it was John Hunter who was actually his uncle. And John Hunter was a member already and he got him in. Um, and John Hunter was the father of you know surgery. And the only medical training Jenner ever had was with Hunter um, and like, you know, and then with an, apothe uh, an apothecary for a couple of years. And so he like was an assistant hunter with his surgeries, which was really like he did. He, I mean, he was a madman. He experimented on, he was a body snatcher. He experimented, did crazy experiments with vivisection and like, you know, torturing animals and, you know, and like, yeah, grave it robbing for his, um, you know, cadavers for all of his anatomy experiments and everything. So but these are, yeah. And so Jenner, um, you know, he took, it was Sarah Nel, uh, Nelms, I think the first her last name was the local, you know, milkmaid who he, who had like, um, he decided to experiment on for the smallpox experiment. And he actually wrote in his notes that she already had a scratch on her hand or something from some injury. And then he took like a cow pus, you know, um, sample and he like scratched it into her hand and then it developed some pus, you know, some like kind of, you know, she had some reaction and then, um, but he should also have that scratch and whatnot. And then he said, oh, it somehow was proof because she got these pustules that like he was transferring immunity to her. I mean, it was just like these experiments are ridiculous and there's really like, there's no science going on here. And it's really all based on superstition. I mean, first of all, that idea was superstitious about the milkmaids not getting smallpox because of cowpox. In fact, it wasn't even like they, he may have added that bit about cowpox. It was just that people drinking a lot of raw milk were healthier than other you know, people around them that weren't probably, I mean, just, you know, they, they're not factoring in lifestyle and diet at all when they're making these decisions about health um, and assumptions about it. So the thing is, um, he was not the first person um, to even do this, to take cowpox material and scratch it into first, it was scratching an arm, inserting the material, you know, through the scratch um, was the way to confer immunity, supposedly, and protect from smallpox. But what he did was actually like, Later, he started, so there was no needle involved. That's part of the problem with the story. Um, he says he injected it, you know, they were injecting with needles. There were no hypodermic needles yet. Um, so he was scratching and then also using um, these points, he called them, and they actually were ivory points um, in a lot of cases, and sometimes even like a quill or something from a, you know, writing utensil. And they're just poking, you know, stabbing, jabbing people with this 
you know, blunt object, basically somewhat sharpened, but, you know, and like already that would have been painful. And so it left a scar on, you know, not um, surprisingly. And that's why that was sort of like your vaccine passport at the time, you know, you had the scar from this, um, this treatment vaccine and the vaccine label that term just comes from vodka for cow because of the cow connection. <clears throat> and so but a couple of people um, in England a couple of years before Jenner actually had done this experiment, but he took, takes all the credit for this, um, for this vaccine development. And before that, for, I mean, a long time, hundreds of years, different parts of the world, um, there was a superstitious practice of scratching. And, um, you know, if somebody had smallpox, you would, you would like rub their scratches together, arm to arm from one scratch person who had the smallpox to one who didn't. And that was supposed to like confer immunity of some kind, but they didn't have this idea of germ theory the way we do and understand it that way. It was like just this superstitious thing, right? There was no scientific basis in it at all. And people really need to understand that there's, there's not science. <laughs> this is superstition. Um, and there was no like it wasn't even to the point of what we do now, which seems more scientific, but again, involves a lot of superstition and belief, but this idea of like microscopes and seeing the thing that's happening, you know, and really knowing we don't actually really know. There's a lot that goes on with that, that people have no awareness of where it's not like these things are not isolated. Viruses are not isolated in a proper way. And they've never actually been photographed or seen under an electron microscope. And that's another thing we can talk about, but with Jenner basically, Oh, he was, also things like I learned that he had a hot air balloon. I mean, he was not, he was an elite, he was very wealthy. And he wrote several times in his own letters that he was out to make a lot of money. And he got the government involved to mandate this. So basically he was replacing um, the, the, it was called a inoculation at the time, right? Um, that pr tradition with smallpox. And that was voluntary, that was never mandated. And so he's saying he has something better and he was guaranteeing that if you did this, you would have complete lifetime immunity from one time, one scratch. And he immediately like started experimenting on this little neighbor's, you know, the gardener's boy. Um, and he went as a, you know, like, forget how young he was, but he started doing this and, it, and he got sick immediately. He got sick. Um, oh, because he never got smallpox, it was considered a success, <laughs> even though he died young because he kept doing it to him. He gave him one the next week and then he did it again. He did it like 20 something times. And even he wrote himself, he's like, yeah, he's like, oh, have you seen um, Phipps's boy? His name, last name was Phipps. So he does not looking very good. Poor boy. He's got tuberculosis. He's got all these problems. Not connecting it at all to the fact that he, you know, jabbed him, poked him 21 times and um, he died. And it is actually 21 is an interesting, if you get into the esoteric side of this, that's an interesting number. But both he and his own son, Jenner's own son died at the same age at 21, I believe. Um, from other things though, like other diseases. So because neither of them died of smallpox has like, he was successful supposedly, you know, um, but they were obviously worse off and had other, all other kinds of disease and died early because you cannot be healthy. If you introduce things, toxins into the blood, you know, he's like, this is a deliberate introduction of a toxin into the bloodstream. Like how can that confer health or create health in anybody? And all of his first um, promises of like lifetime immunity changed quickly to like, well, not immunity, but like you get, you might get the disease, but it won't be as bad as the, <laughs> would that sound familiar, right? Like you'll get a 
a milder version of the disease. And then it was like, you might need to do it several times, you know, so constantly the shutting of science is constantly changing. So like, you know, they keep changing this narrative because the proof keeps showing that like, it's not helping. In fact, it's making people sick. In fact, it was killing people. His vaccine killed thousands and thousands of people. And like, so to the, but he got the government involved to mandate this because he promised the government would also make a lot of money. If you mandate it, obviously if, and then if healthy people have to do this, then you have like everybody is like a, a potential source of profit because they have to also pay for it. The money side of things, like you said, ev everyone's a customer, aren't they? Everyone's yeah. a customer. It's as simple as that. One of the things that I did want to talk about, I mean, like I said, for, for those people who um, maybe not know Shannon, what I would say is she sent me uh, an e-version of this book and it has got mountains of research behind it. You can tell that. And my main problem for this interview was deciding on what we'd talk about because I thought this can't be just covered in one episode. So I had to pick little bits that I, I wanted to touch on and then we could develop it further. But I wanted to talk about the Rockefellers. Obviously, one of the most, well, in my estimations, one of the most reprehensible families in the United States, along with the Clintons and the Bushes. For those who possibly don't know who the Rockefellers are, you really should do if you're going down the rabbit hole. But just let me give you a flavour of what, these people are like and this is a quote it's in your book but it's a quote that i've mm -hmm. read before david rockefeller this is what he says some even believe we are part of a secret cabal working against the best interest of the united states characterizing my family and me as internationalist and of conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global political and economic structure one world if you will if that's the charge, I stand guilty and I'm proud of it. So that tells you everything. We we often in these circles, we often talk about a one world government and globalist. And, we, you know, we talk about the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, there's all kinds of people. That's one of them directly proud. It, and mm -hmm. it's unbelievable. Um, and you wrote something else in your book and you, you put this. It would be through dozens and then hundreds and finally thousands with over 3,000 to date of Rockefeller tax-exempt foundations falling under the guise of philanthropic endeavours that J.D. Rockefeller and future inheritors of his dynasty, a.k.a. the House of Rockefeller, would come to dominate and control first Big Oil, then Big Education, Big Pharma, Big Media, and finally, big government itself, not only in America, but far afield, moving the game into the global arena with the end goal for a new world order that would enable a full spectrum of control of the entire world. So with regards to big sort of pharma and like the medic medical world, could you explain to us the Rockefeller's actual involvement in this? 
Yeah. Like, well, like what you just read, the funding, the foundations, right? Um, so that's a tricky way of them. That's how they avoid the antitrust law, uh, the monopolizations, but all this as well by, you know, breaking up into these supposedly separate entities, separate foundations, supposedly philanthropic and nonprofit and all this, you know, nonsense. But but um, originally what happened is they funded the AMA, which is the American Medical, American Medical Association, which monopolized medicine in this country. That was the goal. They openly stated that they needed to like, you know, squash all the competition. And so when we talk about medicine today and Western medicine, that's actually, we also goes under the name of allopathic. Um, to me, it's not really even medicine, but people should understand the roots of it um, are bloodletting, um, you know, with leeches and um, also just other tourniquets and cutting, you know, <laughs> cutting you, basically bleeding you until you almost die. In some cases you do, you know, or supposedly to cleanse your blood, um, you know, which to me, like, just probably has some kind of like black magic ritual involvement and like, you know, satanic thing of drinking blood and who knows like where that blood goes. You know, a lot of like, we don't know where a lot of blood goes today with the Red Cross, cross donations. Um, it's like not documented, right? Where does this blood go? Um, who's taking it and what are they doing with it? But yeah, other questions. So, but the AMA, um, so, you know, bloodletting leeches, all these things that we now consider barbaric, like barbarism, you know, from the past are the foundations of this kind of medicine. And what people don't understand that did not define all medicine at the time, the leeches and the bloodletting thing, it was just like, one brain, it was like this quackery really, you know, and the rest of medicine was like based on plant medicine, um, well-documented and um, researched and thousands of years of successful use of plant-based medicines, you know, herbal medicines or um, diet and, um, you know, things like rest and clean air and clean water and nutrition, you know, um, really common sense kind of things. Um, and so this got hijacked by this um, idea also with surgeries, right? So it was like the surgery came into this. So it's like the cutting, the, to me, it's still the same kind of approach. It's like cutting things out from the body. If, you know, instead of balancing the body, instead of and supporting it, um, seeing it as an enemy and then getting into this idea that microbes are the enemy. And like, so to burning radiation, poisoning. So you got chemotherapy, poison, like a lot of these, medicines are just poisons and yes your body has a strong reaction to poison and it's visible so in a way that makes people believe it's working and as we're told about vaccines well it's working if you get really sick right that's good it's a good sign <laughs> um so i think it's really a backwards way of, of viewing everything but that's what was the they wanted to dominate it was not the dominant form of medicine in the 1800s in this country it was um actually like there were all kinds of medicine people could choose from um, practices there was homeopathy was very popular um and er there was herbalism you know there were midwives for birthing um so there was all these other options but ama wanted to and this was actually patterned after british um the, I forget what it's called, but just the British Medical Association, like I guess BMA or something came first, and then it was the American Medical Association. So the funding really came from Rockefeller's other funding too, like Carnegie, um, I think, and some other you know, big families, a lot of wealth. Um, they funded this and they funded in particular, the most crucial part of this organization, the way that they went about like getting rid of all this competition was to standardize medicine by attacking like the school systems and the, the accreditation, you know, system. So, so they wanted it to be like exclusive. 
and they wanted to reduce the number of doctors so that they would drive up the cost too. And so basically it was like, if you didn't get approved, um, you know, creating this whole standard, you know, thing, a gold standard of medicine and, and supposedly with education. So they first went for the schools and they decided there were too many schools and they were teaching natural other kinds of medicine. They didn't want them to teach. So, so there was this Flexner report. Um, and this was one, this was a guy who hired, who wasn't a doctor, had no knowledge of any of this stuff. He just was one of the elite families, you know, members and his brothers were like involved in some other shady things. So he was hired, you know, funded by the Rockefellers to come out with this report to basically like say that we need to get rid of all these schools. They need to be closed and we need to only have like, you know, they found these problems with the school systems and they and like convinced somehow got the money from the government and everything to just like convince everybody that we have to have a standard. And that's where they just wiped it out like really quickly. And it went from, I can't remember how many schools to like, you know, reduced. And they also decided it needed to be like a really grueling long process to get through the schooling, um, to get this, you know, degree and to have this like medical degree. Um, and by the way, Jenner never actually went to school at all for medicine. And he, he bought a degree and you could do that at the time. He was even like given honorary degrees from different schools, like later for like, you know, I mean, it's just ridiculous. You know. So today's schools though, because of that, like what they did with the schools and what's happened since, and they, and it's, they've got what they wanted basically was like, this elite, you know, being a doctor would be to be an elitist and to have like this view of humanity is like something sub sub, you know, <laughs> where they are from and um, not caring about people, not like your doctor that would come make house calls. That was your neighbor. That was your friend that really cared about you, um, you know, and just having like not enough doctors and, you know, making it more expensive and making it harder for people to get only like the elite, those from elite families could even afford to go to school and get through that. But at the same time, they go through this sort of like hazing rituals in when you go to med school, you know, in order to like be indoctrinated. Um, so, I mean, I'm not like, I feel sorry for these people and these born into these families because they are really, they're actually also tortured and they're also like um, be, to be indoctrinated, to become sociopaths, basically they're bred this way, you know, they're, they're raised this way and then they're educated this way. And, and I'm not saying all doctors are like this, but I'm saying it takes a pretty strong willed strong individual to to overcome what they've go through this torture sleep deprivation you know um along with like just horrific conditions you're in like the cadavers and no sleep and taking medicines to get through and like the pressure and everything that they go through is just horrendous and so to come out of that to still have your humanity intact is pretty amazing and i'm not saying that i think i think a lot of doctors do come out of it like that, but they also, it shuts off part of themselves that they don't really notice. And it's sort of like, it's an insidious kind of thing where it's like, well, you know, cause you have to be like, kind of shut down some of your empathy and everything to be able to handle the, the way, like, because the approach is to cut people open and to do all these horrific things to them that I see as torturous and not helping them, but they believe it is helping. So they do it, but they have to kind of get past their initial reactions to this, which any human would have with empathy, which is like horror, right? And so, so in that sense, you do kind of cut off yourself from your own humanity and your compassion to, in order to do those things, just like anything that we'd have to do. I mean, you, you said you were in the military. I mean, I don't know what you saw there, or what you were involved with, but it's like, and when you go to war, it's the same kind of thing happens. You know, you kind of have to shut yourself off from that in order to just perform and do your duty. And that's what we see. And, it, and so it is like more like a war scene in the hospitals than, you know, 
then it's, it's not like a healing environment, right? And then, so this is where, anyway, again, I've gone off on a tangent, sorry, but that's, but that's where the Rockefellers come into this. Basically, it's all through funding, and then it's funding the universities. This deciding which university gets funding, what's going to be taught. Um, so that's the, the approach they took, and it's really effective because that's the foundation of the rest of it. You know, you can't, and then there's just so many things like that in the hospitals now and everything where you can't continue to practice even, like you can't keep your license if you don't follow their standard of care, you know, golden standard of care, which is like basically um, involves like giving drugs and doing treatments on people that they know will kill them. You know, when you have even direct evidence that if you continue with this drug on this patient, you will kill this patient. But if you stop the drug, you are not practicing standard of care, you can lose your license. And this is the kind of decisions that doctors are faced with all the time. And so they might just not just choose not to look at that closely and examine it and think of that, you know, they're just following orders basically. Right. And that's what happens. They become like minions in this. And so the hierarchy, there's this hierarchy again, is the people with the funding power and any kind of research that goes into medicine, vaccines, everything, look at the money trail, right? Who's there putting money into it. And it's not people who care about us. It's people who, yeah, like openly say that they're better than us, that they want to govern us. They, they, they don't think we're worthy of that ourselves. And um, yeah. Mm. So one of the interesting things that I picked up on the straight away was when you mentioned about blood and bloodletting and I'm a, I'm a Christian and, and in the Bible, it talks about blood and it, and it, and it says actually that the life is in the blood obviously uh, eating things with blood and it was forbidden in the old Testament, not, obviously not to drink blood and things like that. But you can see there is, I mean, I can see that there's a spiritual aspect to this as well. Um, because obviously, yeah, they, they used to bleed them, didn't they? Like they thought they were making them better and people were dropping dead. But had they have only read the Bible in Leviticus, where it says the life's in the blood, then they wouldn't have been doing that. Um, but obviously there seems to be a, a spiritual aspect, a dark sort of, spiritual aspect to this bloodletting and like you were saying there about you know um, people give blood and we don't know where a lot of it goes it just well it makes it just makes you wonder I mean obviously there's the um there's the elites and the the, the people in Hollywood who obviously the rumors are the adrenochrome obviously uh thing there with you know torturing yeah. kids basically to get that out of them but you did obviously touch on, like you mentioned, obviously the military and everything, and you've got a, a, a quote. Well, there's, there's a couple of quotes I'd like to read. One of them by French playwright, is it Moliere, you've put in there, mm -hmm. and you've put, doctors know how to speak Latin, know all ancient Greek names for diseases, but for curing them, they know nothing at all. And then a quote from yourself, I, I like this little quote, indoctrinated <laughs> doctors, doctor and indoctrinate. But you mentioned, um, obviously, that, you know, it's like a boot camp and you've wrote in your book, actually, just like in a boot camp, a medical resident is trained through classic mind control methodology using techniques such as sleep deprivation, semi-starvation and overwork coupled with continual indoctrination, which cannot be questioned by lower ranking students or soldiers inside artificial, unhealthy environments while confronted with psychologically horrifying scenarios, in the case of medical students, in particular residents, trainees are made to work unreasonable hours for months to years on end while trapped inside the blue-lighted, windowless, chemical-laden environments, 
under extreme duress, pressure to pass exams, etc., and are not allowed to question authority, are not allotted time for proper nutrition, and so often subsist on junk food, caffeine, and other stimulants, and are thrown into horrifying, blood-filled scenarios in which people may be crying out in pain and dying, not so different from the battlefield, definitely not so different from the battlefield. But I mean... That's something most people won't consider. That's the reality. I mean, I, I've i got um, a family member who's a GP, a general practitioner over here, and obviously spent years in medical school. And I never really thought what he'd gone through. Um, And it just, I'd never thought of it the way you've put it, that it's like, you know, the boot camp that you have. Yeah. And you've, yeah. it's, and, mm -hmm. and you've also put another quote in by a guy, another doctor called, is it Rima Lebau? And he describes mm -hmm. the system. And he puts the medical schools were shaped and they were developed with the support of the Rockefeller funded medical boards to train pill pushers. Definitely pill pushers. Period. End of discussion. Very elegant, very elaborate, elaborate very highfalutin training, brainwashing. Having lived through it, I can tell you it is nothing of short of brainwashing. There's sleep deprivation, there's protein deprivation, there's shame, there's guilt, there's more stress than you can possibly imagine. And in the end, what you're supposed to do is kowtow to the wisdom of your elders and seek their approval throughout your entire life while raising yourself within the ranks of the elite by being patted on the head every time you satisfy their demands and meet their standards. But what you're not supposed to do is think ever. Medical training is brainwashing procedure designed to produce compliant, well-puffed-up pill pushers. That I mean, that is exactly it. That is what they do. They just literally give you drugs. I've said I've been I've been saying this to people now recently. I've said if you know people going oh I need to go doctors the people at work and I've said you will go to the doctors and they will write you a script. That's all they're gonna do. You're gonna get a prescription, and they're just gonna give you some drug, some cream, or something because that's all they are. The drug dealers, and I feel a little bad speaking like that because obviously we've all been to the doctors, but. I myself have completely gone away. I don't take paracetamols. I don't take anything. I've bought a book where it teaches you how to make your own herbal remedies for things. It's it's filled with all that. And that's the road I'm going down. And I would recommend that people do that as well. Because, I mean, it's just a massive industry. But one of the things you talk about in your book is the Milgram experiment. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, um, I forget the first name of that person, the Dr. Milgram. He, um, he. Okay, so it's like they had, they had a. Okay, I'm gonna try to paint this scenario here, but it was basically they got volunteers um, to to go through with this, but they had like, and they didn't tell them what was really going on. They just said, okay, you're gonna. Um, they had somebody in another room that they couldn't see, and they said, okay, we have somebody in this other room, and you're gonna be at the controls where you're gonna. Um, you know, these levers to um, electric, basically electrocute them, like give them, you know, send them like jolts of electricity. And, um, and like, you know, they could hear the person, they couldn't see the person on the other side. And so, um, and you'd have, but you have the person with the white coat and it wasn't like, they didn't even ever say they're a doctor or anything. They just come in with a white, white coat, clip, you know, clipboard and say, okay, like move the dial up more now or something. And then, so you're just going to like obey the orders, right? And so you'd hear the person, you'd hear the person like screaming, the more they like put 
the lever up. Person screaming, screaming, screaming. Um, and so the experiment really was, and again, the volunteers weren't aware of what the actual goal was, was to see what they would do. Um, how far would they go um, before they uh, disobeyed the authority and questioned it, right? Even though they know they're causing suffering to this other human, um, most of them just went along with it because they were afraid not to obey the white coat. You know, um, they were supposed to obey, even though they would maybe visibly cringe, even cry or like, you know, show these reactions, mostly they didn't question it, even when they thought the other person may have died. So unfortunately, the majority was proven to just that they couldn't help but go along with the orders against their own better judgment, against their own feelings of compassion for a fellow human. So, yeah, wow. pretty telling. It's, yeah. One of the things that springs to mind, though, we obviously talk, we're talking about fear and how they fear like, you know, the, per, the person's got a white coat on and they're just doing these things. Again, I'll just refer back to the Bible. All the time, God says in the Bible not to fear men, tells you not to fear them. And there's a reason for that. It's because, obviously, God knows. Like, these people were doing what, well, they didn't know whether they were torturing that person. Obviously, it was an experiment. But they just went along with it. I mean, that's just, that's frightening to think what people will go along with out of fear. And obviously, we know from... Obviously, the lockdowns, what people, what, what fear can do to people. Um, now, when I was talking to John, um, he, made, he made a statement which took me by surprise, really, because, like I said, some, some of these things that we're talking about today, they are new to me, and this was, this was definitely new to me, and I, I admit that. And I'm on a journey now where I've, I've come to the conclusion that basically everything I've ever been told is a lie, that's what I've been by the mainstream, and I'm unlearning everything and relearning. So John said that viruses don't exist. And in your book, you said that viruses don't e exist. So could you explain to people what the germ theory is and then tell us why you're saying that viruses, that they don't actually exist? Yeah, sure. First, I'll say that, um, well, germ theory is really about contagion, this idea of contagion that microbes can sort of attack us and then cause disease. And that has ever never actually been proven. And that will come to as a really big surprise to a lot of people. Um, and also, and it, and it isn't, hasn't been around that long either, maybe a couple hundred years now, we're talking about um, basically Louis Pasteur came after Jenner, even in Jenner's time. I mean, there was this, there was an idea of a contag of contagion in a sense, but not with this sort of idea that it's, it's from a microbe, right? Um, so a lot of different ideas about what might cause people to get sick from other people around. Um, but even then it was a problem because when they, when they focused on that idea, which was like, you know, the basis of the vaccine um, push was that they weren't looking at diet. And so smallpox cases really was, it was a smallpox was because of malnutrition um, and also insanitary conditions. So, um, you know, the problem is like, you can get sick, obviously, when you're drinking water that's contaminated with feces or from a dead body or something, but not because of the microbes in it. But I think more that there's a toxic element. And so the toxins can make you sick. Um, but it doesn't necessarily when the presence or absence of microbes that we've been able to see under microscopes does not relate directly to causation of disease. Like they are present um, and we don't really understand them. Like they're present in disease often, 
and they often are there more of a rep as a as a needed element like our body is creating this reaction to um a toxin so you get the exposure of something that makes you sick and usually a toxin or like a lack of nutrition or like exposure to too much cold you know whatnot there's lots of different things and then your body's going to respond in the best way possible to help you it's there to help you it's not your enemy and the problem is modern medicine allopathic medicine sees the body as the enemy also sees humanity as an enemy to the planet so there's this like really you know, disparaging viewpoint of humanity in general, and which affects us psychologically, we start, there's a lot of self hate. I mean, look at all the body dysmorphia going on right now, you know, people don't, they think that they hate themselves, they hate, you know, it's it's a horrible condition we're in right now with this brainwashing due to this, right, that we hate ourselves. And we don't understand then that our body is there to help us and that bacteria that arise in disease conditions are there to help you, you don't want to get rid of them, you know, that's not the goal to get rid of them. So, so yes, we've been able to see bacteria under a microscope, but viruses have never been viewed under a microscope. And that's what people don't understand. The idea of virus, virus is the Latin for poison, which is very interesting, right? So I believe there are viruses and that there are poisons um, from that perspective. But what, what the medical institution industry tells us a virus is, is not correct because um, first of all, they, it's just modeled. It's actually a theory is modeled after what was called bacteriophage, which is um, basically a spore that comes out of bacteria that they release and that they first thought were like eating bacteria. They called them bacteria eaters. So they didn't really understand them, but basically they're smaller than bacteria. Um, and so they thought that this was something like um, that could attack and kill cells. And so they saw it as like a destructive element. And so then they decided to base this the reason that even this came up as a theory was that what happened is that the germ theory wasn't kind of like, it kept getting disproven. And the problem was like, also that you'd come up, have new, um, new diseases that you couldn't find a bacterial element to at all. Like you couldn't consistently, not that they ever really consistently found this, but you couldn't say, oh, there, we see this bacterium. It's in all these cases of this new disease. It's present. They can't even say that it's present. So they can't find anything like that to scapegoat the illness on instead of like, Hey, let's get rid of clean up these sewers and all that, you know, let's give some, the people some more food or like better, let's some, how about some greens and some vitamin C in their diet or something, you know, their people are starving and they don't have adequate clothing or housing. They don't have ventilation in their homes, you know, let's not do anything about that. Let's scapegoat that. So the government doesn't have to spend any money on the people. And let's like blame the silent killer. That's really, that it's invisible to everybody. And only the white coats can see it. Only the elite that have the special equipment and the access to that can see them, not you, you know, the layman, not you, the, the peon. So you've got this, they said, well, there must be something smaller that we can't see that is causing illness, you know, because we can't see them. We just can't see it. We don't have the equipment yet. So already they had the theory of viruses, again, meaning poisons from like 1915. Um, and then it was like the 1930s. They, they had the, then they finally came up with the equipment to supposedly view the virus. And this was, this is the electron microscope, really huge machine can, can see on um, little, you know, microbes down to, or the uh, microbes, because they're not necessarily alive. Um, but down to like so many nanometers, um, which is like, so my viruses are supposed to be between like something like 20 and 200 nanometers in size. And this is like much smaller than bacteria. 
The problem is they've never been viewed under these microscopes. Like they had the idea, they went with it. They told everybody there's something called viruses. We can't see them yet, but then they did see Then they said, we can see them now, but they can't, they still haven't seen them. What they see is what they believe to be particles of a virus. So, so the pictures that they show from the electron microscopes are part of viral particles. Okay. Now the whole virus genome, which is supposed to be a protein, uh, you know, encased, um, in a lipid cell. I mean, they just have this, I forget exactly like the, what they say it is, you know, supposed to be. Um, and they, that, that modeling is now done on computers. And so these pictures we see are computer models. That's the viral whole virus, um, that they've never seen. They've met, they have factually speaking, this has never been seen. They've never, they don't even try to isolate it. They've tried, I'm sure, and it's failed. So isolation, meaning now you have to say purification because they bastardized the word isolate. Um, but what it means is like, you're supposed to spin around, like get, you get some sputum, you know, spit from a sick patient. You assume there's a virus in there because they're sick, right? That's the idea. That's how it starts. Then you're supposed to like spin that around in a centrifuge thing and then take this little piquette thing and you're supposed to like try to pull out like the, you know, get the virus from that and then look at it under the microscope. Well, they don't even do that. They don't even try to do that anymore. That's kind of the process they've used for isolating bacterium. And actually I could get, I do even question that personally now. Because when they say we found bacterium, the problem is they're looking at something They have to use like staining dyes, they have to use a lot of chemicals. So all these samples are completely um, uh, like they're, they're compromised, that's a good word, um, with all these other elements that they add to them. So they're always adding something, adding something, adding something. And I have this in my book, I list out all the things that are added to the sample that's supposed to have the virus in it before before they do the test of contagion test, right? Or like, so they, what they do is they say, okay, we, so you put it through all these processes, like your spit, right? And then, or your urine or your blood, all the processes. Um, and then they take that and they take like another tissue sample, usually from um, a monkey's kidneys. For some reason, you got to rip out their kidneys and grind them up in a blender. And then that's going to be the cell tissue, you know, so if you're like care about animals and you're vegetarian, whatever, you should never have these medicines. Like all these pharmaceuticals are basically based on animals being tortured, um, especially vaccines and also having this, this from them. I mean, you have their DNA in your vaccine, right. From animals, because you've either got the chicken, um, you've either gotten like an egg, you know, from a chicken in there, or you've got the kidney cells from a monkey. So that's the cell sample that you're going to take like your cell culture that's been added all this stuff to, and then you're going to like put it into some of it into the other cell cult, um, culture. And, and this is heated. I mean, it's like, and then you're going to look, you're going to look at it, not right after you've done that, but like 24 hours later after it's incubated, like you put it in, you know, heat it up. And then you look at it and if you see like so much percentage of cell death in the cell tissue sample, which is already going to be dying because it's already not in the body anymore. So it's it mat automatically when it's like the, it's taken out of the body, it starts to die, right? It's It's going to die. And so they say that it's proof that there was a virus and it's proof of contagion and virus that there's a virus by the fact you have so much cell death in the cells tissue sample. 
I mean, it's a very complex stuff. Like this is the problem. They make it very complicated and very like, again, you know, unaccessible to the public. And like, you can't understand this. It's like, you can't understand this. Well, it's doesn't, there's nothing really to understand. It's so weird what they're doing. It doesn't make any sense. And so if you question, say it doesn't make sense. Like, oh, you're not really eligible to make sense of this. We are, you know, and you're not at our level. You haven't gone through the indoctrination. But the point being that um, there's no actual isolation done anymore. They don't even try to. They just um, mess around with these samples. And what they do is like, they don't do, even do a control. So when you take this sample from the body, that you think has a virus in it, you haven't proven this, and then you mess around with it, and then you add it, and there's chemicals at it, and whatever. And you never, they never say, well, it could be the chemicals that cause the cell death, or it could be what we did to this other sample that caused cell death, because there's never a control that's done with like another sample from a non-sick patient that you think doesn't have a virus. And the fact is, even if they did that control, they would probably say, well, they're asymptomatic. <laughs> they must have a virus in them, right? Because the same thing happened to the cell culture. Yeah. Well, the same thing's going to happen to the cell culture because you're, you're, you're poisoning it. You're also like they use bacteria sides in it because they want to make sure all the bacteria is eliminated. So they're like poisoning with bacteria side. And it's just, it's, it's incredible. It's mind numbingly incredible. And I, I, I got, went into this in a lot of detail in my book because I want people to really understand and see that this is fraud. I mean, that is fraudulent practice right there. That is not science. And so no, no virus has ever been isolated. In fact, um, a, now a good friend of mine, James McCominsky, he's um, Irish. He lives, I think he lives in Belfast now. He's lived in the Republic too, Ireland, but he's he took it on himself, you know, decades now, he sent like these Freedom of Information Act, you know, requests to these like the National Viral Laboratory in Dublin, for example, as in one of the main places, we sent them all over the place to all the health authorities all over the world, asking for one paper proving isolation, the existence of vi a virus, any virus. And he lists all these different ones, like any of these, like measles, mumps, rubella, SARS COVID 2, you know, like all of these, any of these, do you have, like, I want to see the papers that, that prove that it's isolated. And all his responses are that no such records exist because they don't have them. They don't, they can't, and they can't create a record that doesn't exist for him. And there, it doesn't exist. And they actually have come back to him and said, we do not isolate viruses. Nobody isolates viruses. We don't have this proof. It's, and, and it's like, they don't even seem to understand the significance of that statement of getting back to him and others, thousands of others have done this. There's just so many people now asking these questions and always either they don't respond or they respond to the negative. We don't have this proof. So if they had the proof, if viruses existed, then they could show the proof and any papers that say we've isolated a virus. When you actually look and read the paper, they have not within it. They then admit in the paper, they have not isolated it. So what they're calling isolation is something else completely. And they're not, they've not done this.
it's the unseen enemy again. And it's something else that people believe in that they've never seen. One of the things I say to people is, now, I'm not going to go out on a limb here and say I believe the Earth is flat. I'm not going to say I believe whatever shape it is. But we've never seen the Earth, ever. And people yeah. are shocked when you tell them that. And they said, what do you mean? I said, no, no, you've seen basically 12 strips of data put together. They make it look like a globe. It might be a globe. I don't know. But we haven't seen it. Just like they've yeah. not seen these viruses. And like you've said in your book, there's it says the only viruses which have been scientifically proven to exist through the long established trusted means of gradient centrifuge isolation and electron microscope biocharacterization have been those found in sea algae and demonstrated to be not only benign but potentially beneficial. And yeah. this was done by Dr. Stephen Lanker in the 1980s since his successful isolation and characterization of C. algae viruses, no other viruses to date have been successfully isolated and characterized. Like I said to people before on this podcast, like it's called Beyond the Paradigm because this paradigm or this framework, the elites have set this up for us. They want us to operate and view the world through their paradigm, what they've created. And I've called it Beyond the Paradigm because we need to get beyond that. We need to break free of it. And that's part of the you know this episode here that you know the the evidence that you're presenting and obviously in your book there's mountains of it so people are going to be thinking to themselves now well if these viruses don't exist well what makes us sick then mm -hmm. yeah and that's a good question and i would say it's a very um complex answer and that we don't know all the time and i think that the problem is like modern medicine wants to say they have all the answers and science has all the answers and that it's like a very kind of black and white, clear cut kind of thing too. Like one germ, one equals one disease equals one solution. We have this for you. Um, but it's more, um, it's more nuanced than that. You know, um, health is nuanced. Sickness is nuanced. It's like, it's not clear cut. You can't just say this. I mean, some cases maybe it's pretty clear, but not always. I mean, um, the problem is there's so many, there's so much poison now in our food and in our air and our environment that, um, you know, which one of those things. And I think, and the more they add the poisons, the less liability, they, they can kind of shield themselves from liability, like industries that are poisoning, polluting, because they can say, well, so many of these other poisons in your water cause cancer too. So you can't really tell us it's, you know, say it's us, right. You can't point the finger anymore. They, and they do that a lot because so many things cause cancer, right? So, well, it can't be the vaccine. It could be, I mean, it could be so many other things that cause cancer. Um, and that's the, that's the issue right there. And in terms of contagion though, we can all point to examples in which we got sick. Um, and like, it seemed like because our partner or somebody close to us living in our space got sick and then we got sick. But then at the same time, we have a lot of examples to disprove that where that didn't happen. So how can you say that's why when all the other times it didn't happen? And that's when they get into the, oh, but they have an answer for us, immune systems, right? But the immune system, and that's another thing I get into in the book because it's like another kind of fabricated thing, right? What's the immune system exactly? It's not really that clearly defined. And so the problem is that, um, that that is like, again, really, I would say resiliency, right? We should say relabel resiliency because in a way that's what they're trying to say, but it's like, um, if, you know, what creates more resiliency in one person than the other, if they're both being poisoned, for example, um, well, the usual things that create health, you, the one person got more sleep, got better nutrients, 
is less stressed. You know, um, the other person didn't, maybe it's also, maybe one person's like taking some drugs or pharmaceutical drugs, you know, or drinking a lot or staying up late. And, you know, the other person isn't, maybe one's like sleeping with a cell phone. The other person isn't, I mean, there's just like, there's so many things that contribute to health. And I try to list a lot of them in the book to, to get people thinking about like other things, because if you're not thinking about what else it could be, you're going to focus on contagion, but you're just going to believe that. And the most amazing thing about all this to me is this idea of the asymptomatic carrier, which didn't initially exist with contagion, but they've had to come up with this idea just as another way to pretend like there's, you know, they're right. Because obviously you can't have asymptomatic carriers when you talk about contagion. I mean, it's just so ridiculous, you know? Um, so anybody could be carrying, they never get sick yet. They're making people sick again, like humans are enemies. They're bad. Like we should stay away from each other. You know, we should just not exist. I mean, we should like, you know, we just cause so much, so many problems. I mean, that's the attitude, but I have a really good example. Um, I just, I've actually right now I'm, I'm proofreading, uh, James McKinnisky's have another book he's coming out with soon called overcoming the germ theory, uh, medical myth really excellent book. And I contributed um, to it. Here's a chapter in which people like John Hamer as well contributed a story about how we came to kind of what you're asking me, like, how did I come to, you know, be awakened to this? Um, and so he had this great example I'd never heard of, um, of these, um, what they call conjo um, conjoined twins, Siamese twins, another word for that, Masha and Dasha, who were like Russian ones and they were studied, you know, by scientists. In fact, they were like taken from the mother at birth. They, they told the mother they died <laughs> and they just took them. Right. And like, you know, to be able to monitor them because they, they had uh, shared like several organs and even like a limitary, you know, they had the same rectum and so they each had one leg and then like the middle was sort of like the legs in the middle are like, you know, conjoined. And so, so they have the separate heads, separate arms, and then so the middle is like all shared. And the thing is that one of them would get measles and the other not. One of them would get a cold or flu. The other would not. They're sharing a circulatory system. They're sharing elimination you know, organs. And how is one getting sick and the other not from something that's considered to be a contagion, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't you know even how to explain why one of them would be sick and the other not in that case when they're sharing like basically the same body almost. So mind yeah. blowing. Amazing. Wow. Right. Wow. <laughs> Sometimes I do these interviews and someone says something, it blows my mind. And that is just I'll be thinking about that now for days. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good one. <laughs> um, so just to sort of bring this to a close, obviously we've talked about the germ theory, but there's also the terrain theory. Hmm. Could you tell yeah. us so I mean, obviously, we know about, like, sanitary conditions. You need to keep things clean or you're going to get ill and things like that. People know that. But they possibly haven't thought about it in this way. So could you tell us what the terrain theory is? Yeah. Um, and so even to, even there, it's like I think there's definitely a kind of people can be too clean in that they're using a lot of chemicals and things to supposedly clean their environment. They're actually, like, exposing themselves to more poisons. Um, there's something to be said for like a kind of relaxed level of <laughs> cleanliness, you know, because the, the problem is all these like, you know, supposed diseases we eradicated that were supposedly contagious really had to do with like the kind of conditions that we cannot even fathom right now. We can fathom them if we go to third world countries and see how people are living in some cases there, the really poor people there. 
but we're talking about contaminated drinking water with feces, you know, in the drinking water directly. We're talking about no ventilation. I mean, windowless rooms, right? We're talking about like no nutrition. I mean, starvation. I mean, it's just like, and people, I mean, literally shitting in the hallway, you know, like using the and animals shitting in the hallway, animals outside the door, dead, dead animal bodies outside the window. Even if you had a window to open. Right. So, so like when we talk about sanitation efforts, it's like getting, not having that, like not, you know, like shitting where you eat. Right. That, that's the basic <laughs> sanitation principle and then nutrition. Well, in terms of terrain theory, that's basically saying that, um, okay. When we're talking about like, so Bechamp, um, Antoine Bechamp was a contemporary of, um, of, uh, what's his name right now? Um, oh gosh, why am I speaking Pasteur, on it? But yeah, Louis Pasteur, right. So yeah. they were contemporaries. Pasteur was just a chemist and he liked to view things like a chemist does, um, in terms of like just chemicals and our body's just a stack of chemicals and, you know, um, and very mechanistic viewpoint. Whereas Bechamp had a lot of other, um, you know, degrees and is a really interesting man, but he actually studied microbes with a dark field miscopersy and that's actually different so different ways of viewing we could get into that too like there's all all kinds of different ways of viewing under a microscope and this is more like um live 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 culture viewing right so you're seeing things while they're living um instead of when they're dead and so that makes a big difference obviously but he saw he saw that like um that actually saw like he found this little tiny thing in our bodies and tissue samples that would like change into different bacteria and change into different fungi um depending on the environment so if he like poisoned that culture um that would change right and so so really um the feeding the culture the right like having the right kind of cell food you know say if your cells are getting fed properly that's the terrain and then um you know, it's like, you're more again, resiliency, right? So if your terrain's compromised, um, and you don't have that nutrition in your body and that terrain, it's almost like, I'd like to think of it as like gardening, right? If you're growing a plant, um, and you can go two directions, you could try the chemical route fertilizers and everything. And we know that that's not as good for us. And that the plant that's created from that is has less nutrient, like measurably less nutrients in it. Um, and you're also like, cons you know, consuming some poisons. Well, if you do organic gardening or perm permaculture, the whole purpose, like in your, when you're organic gardening, you know, that the health of the soil is everything and the health of the soil, it means a healthy plant, right? And that's the foundation. And so the plant will be resistant to disease, resistant to fungi, um, you know, that might cause rot and all this damage when the soil is healthy and the soil is healthy because of actually like having a lot of diversity in it, but also it's just like the acidity levels. And, um, you know, it's, it's really like the more microbes in the soil, the healthier it is. And the more diversity of microbes in the soil, the healthier it is, the healthier the plant is. So the healthier, you can look at terrain theory, just in terms of your gut alone, like even modern science knows sort of understands that like you need a lot of different bacteria in your gut for it to be healthy and for to process waste right and so otherwise you got this waste in your body you can't process and get rid of you know effectively um because and the problem is i think one reason like in general our health is declining on the planet is because our like you could say our microbiome is being deliberately maybe deliberately affected or targeted because microwaves and millimeter waves kill 
smaller life forms directly, like immediately. And this is including microbes. And we know that like taking antibiotics kills microbes in the gut and that that's a bad thing. Even finally, they're finally, you know, they're always like slow to catch up and like admit something, right? That they've caused (laughs) the problem they've caused. And antibiotic means anti-life. It means anti-life. So it's just indiscriminately killing everything in your body. And you might feel better for a while because bacteria, when you, when you are reacting to something, your body's trying to repair itself, you can release a lot of create the bacteria. And in fact, you're creating, it's not necessarily coming from outside. Usually it's like the proof that I've seen is that it's coming from inside, not from outside, right? You're creating these things in your body. Even if there were viruses, you'd be creating them. It's not going to enter you. Like it's not going to come and attack you from the air, you know? Um, so but these come up arise to try to help you. But when you are like very sick from a poison or lack of nutrition and your body's trying to write itself into homeostasis, say you're not eating well, or you're not eating enough and you're starving, then your body's trying to do something and reacting to that. Well, when you have a lot of bacteria that suddenly create it um, from that condition changing, your terrain changing, um, they it can release little spores, which can be like, not feel good to have all these spores and it can, they can be toxic. And so when you use an antibiotic, it'll kill the spores. And so you feel better, right? So you'll feel better quickly, but then you immediately, there's so many instances of people having another problem in their body because of that attack. Like if you're going at it like that, like warfare in your body, then you're going to have like some, you know, consequences. And so, and eventually you're going to have to go through it again because your body's still trying to repair and it's going to now have to repair the damage done by the antibiotics. So now you have like more bacteria rising, trying again to repair and like, and write the terrain and get back to this, this homeostasis, this symbiosis. Right. And so again, if you attack it again, you're going to have the same problem and it's going to get worse. And so what happens is in my own experience was like UTIs, right. I'd go in for the antibiotic because that's a really painful thing when it comes up and it's and so at first I feel good, but maybe only for a day. And then it'll be worse the next, I had to go for, they get me another one or stronger one worse again. And then I'd see the cycle of like, well, I have to keep taking them and I never get well. And so this doesn't seem like a good idea. And, but the problem is if you're in a lot of pain and you don't have another option, you know, it's easy to go and just rely on that. But like, I found other options finally. So now I don't have to go through the cycling, this vicious cycle, my yeah. But anyway, I hope that explains it. I mean, so basically it's like the conditions in your body, um, when they're balanced and you have a lot of different, you know, things in there helping to balance that that's your terrain. The terrain is also our, our environment around us, the way I see it. And so when your environment's poisoned, you get poisoned and then the whole terrain is upset. And then there's a reaction in your body again, trying its best to repair. But if you just start it with a healthy, like, again, if it's, you know, you have to undo that damage at some point. And if you're like doing that with the soil and you're planting your, um, your food and you keep attacking the soil in order to get rid of the, the pests, right? Instead of supporting the soil to get rid of pests because there won't be pests when the soil soil is supported and the plants will not have pests eating them when they're, when they're supported with the right nutrients and the soil is good. And then they have like a diversity of plants around them and everything's in balance. And then there's no pest problem. But if you keep attacking the pests, then they're going to keep coming back or some other pests will come back. And while you're doing that, you're depleting the nutrients in the soil and you're, you're destroying it. And then at some point you just can't farm anymore because you've destroyed the soil and everything dies. So is that a good analogy? <laughs> I think that's yeah, it's brilliant. <laughs> well, okay. guys, we've, we've definitely had an education, uh, Shannon, it's been, it's been brilliant. I mean, one, one of the things that I'm 
going to be doing more this year. I sort of got away, like I said to you off air, I, I used to spend a lot of time outside as a child growing up. I was Cub Scouts, I was in the army and everything growing up, you know, so I was always outside. But just over the last few years, I mean, so I moved four years ago down to where I live now in North Wales. And it's obviously a, very, a lot smaller places than where I'm from originally. But I've actually spent less time outside these last 18 months than probably ever. So that's one thing I'm going to, like, I, I'm not only the, the spiritual aspect of my life, but I'm going back to sort of better nutrition, you know, um, spending more time in the sun. Than I, like, I'm quite olive-skinned anyway, so I, I go brown straight away as soon as the sun looks at me. But, you know, get that vitamin D in, just get out into nature even more. Uh, because obviously there's the mental health side of things as well. It just, it just makes you feel better and you know, steering away from all this rubbish that we're told, which that's basically what it is, and, and educating myself. And I, de I'd, I'd definitely recommend for people to buy your book, Shannon. I mean, you've you've sent me, obviously, an e-version of it, but I'll I'll probably, well, I say probably, I am going to buy the, the actual physical copy because I, or, I always like to have a physical copy. And you... The the money the money that I'm going to pay for it is well worth it because you you've put so much effort into it and time I know you've spent a lot of time researching it and I think it's something um, that you can go back to and look at it and it's definitely an education um, and it's been fantastic talking to you and like I said off air I'd love to get you back on the show um, I definitely think you know you've got plenty of stuff to say about all kinds of different topics but just before we go could you tell everyone where they can purchase all of your books and where they can contact you and about your website and everything yeah um you can get my books on amazon also barnes and noble i don't do you get barnes and noble over there i don't know how expensive they are with other outside the u.s mm. but it's very popular out here yeah. um so i do have like one alternative to amazon right now um and that you can also just find those links on my website if you just want to go to my website and then find everything there and that is wifi-refugee.com. So there's a hyphen in the middle of wifi-refugee.com. And you can contact me there. I do live off grid. I'm not online all that much. And I, so it can be a little slow to respond, but um, yeah. And I love that you're going to be living a more balanced life. I recommend that to everybody. I mean, I spent too much time, honestly, researching all this where in that I was in I mean, although I have a job that I do outside as well, I have two jobs that are, you know, outdoor jobs. Um, but I still didn't feel like I balanced it well. Like I overdid it um, in terms of the time frame. And I am writing a new book on on tech addiction, and that's actually been a real education for me too. And it's helping me motivate me to like take my time with this new book and um, get out more as well. And I recommend that everybody else get like detach from technology more, disconnect more and get more connected to nature and with each other. And like, cause we can't ever even hope to help our real world if we're not in it. <laughs> so, you know, and that's, and, it, and our health depends on the health of our environment. And then we could get into the, and I'm not talking about so-called climate change. That's another, that's really to me, just like a hijacking of like environmentalism and um and steering us in the totally wrong direction to more like ecocide so we can talk about that another time maybe but that's yeah, something definitely. i research as well and yeah. yeah and i know john's researching that right now a lot too i've been learning a lot yeah. from him with his his research so i mean I, i've definitely yeah. 
made resolution. I'm going to get out more, you know, some, I, I've decided I'm just going to go out and just sit just outside. I live, like I told you before, I can just, there's, there's hillsides right near me. I can be on top of them in 15 minutes and I'm overlooking the entire coast and I'm just going to go out and I'm going to make a little fire when it's cold and I'm going to make myself, you know, a mug of tea on there ju just because I, I can and because it's good just to be out and just to be away, leave my phone at home and just be in nature. And I think it's definitely going to be, you know, a positive move. It's definitely going to do me good rather than harm. And like I said to you, I mean, I have to spend time because I, I enjoy doing this podcast and like you, you've got to research things. Um, but definitely this year, I'm going to spend more time cycling, walking and being out in the open air. It's been it's been wonderful talking to you. Um, like I said, your book, it's really opened my eyes to a lot of things that I didn't um, know about. Um, and I'd definitely love to have you back on the show. So hopefully, guys, yeah. this has been an education for you all, as it has for me. Um, I'll be back next week with another guest. I'm Paul, and this is Beyond the Paradigm. Am I crazy? We don't use that word in here. <laughs>